Welcome to the Messianic Jewish Life Podcast. Hi, this is Daniel Nessim, and today we'll continue our series on the history of the Messianic movement by taking a closer look at the social and religious world into which the Messiah was born. As we continue in our second episode on the history of Messianic Judaism, we are going to look a little bit at what the Jewish world was like in the first century BCE, the world into which Yeshua was born. And we'll also look a bit more at what made it that way, the subject of our previous episode. Israel was a nation chafing under the yoke of foreign domination. A mere 40 years following Yeshua's ministry, over a century of pent-up frustration and hostility against Israel's Roman overlords would explode into a series of rebellions powerful enough to severely test the might of the great empire itself. To ensure that such a rebellion would not take place again, the Jewish people were exiled from the holy city and dispersed over time throughout the empire. Meanwhile, before the rebellion, the early Jewish Christian or Christian Jewish movement was able to spread the news that Yeshua is the Messiah throughout that very same empire. For in every city of importance, there were synagogues and communities peopled by both Jews, converts, and God-fearers. Thus, the early believers had a ready-made audience throughout the empire that made the proclamation of their message quite possible. Now going back, following the exile to Babylon and the return of the exiles with Ezra the scribe, the religious foundations of Judaism were firmly founded on obedience to the written word. With the construction of the second temple, worship was formalized as in the time of David and Solomon a people torn from their land and miraculously brought back adhered to the pure worship with passion and fervor. It was this passion that fueled the great and successful revolt against the Seleucids and their leader Antiochus Epiphanes, and, not to mention, against those Jews among them who were on Antiochus's side wanting to go the way of the Greeks. But, led by the Maccabees, as we saw last episode, the people of Israel arose and conquered their enemies and laid the foundations of the modern Israel into which Yeshua was born. The passion of the people for Torah and for pure worship of the Almighty gave birth to many different parties and sects. But against the evil Antiochus Epimetheus, the words of Matthias the priest became a rallying cry. He said, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to do his commandments, departing each one from the religion of his fathers, yet I and my sons and my brothers will live by the covenant of our fathers. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. Mattathias' son Judah emerged as leader of the armed struggle and was surnamed Maccabee, which probably means the hammer. His followers thus became known as the Maccabees. Though 
and through many battles, the Maccabees gained control over the temple in 164 BCE. The remaining foreign troops were isolated in their fortress nearby and could be largely ignored. The temple, due to the disrespect the Gentiles had treated it with and the pagan worship it had been used for, was cleansed. The defiled altar was replaced. The courts were cleaned and renovated. Following this great festival was held for eight days. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days with burnt offerings with gladness. They offered a sacrifice of deliverance and praise, the book of Maccabees says. Ever since the Jewish people have celebrated this eight-day festival of dedication in commemoration. Now, as we saw last week, over the following decades, the Maccabees became the established political power brokers in a very nationalistic Israel. From 142 BCE on, Judea became a fully independent state. While they had defeated a waning Greek empire, however, Rome was growing in power. It was this Rome and her legions that would dominate the region for centuries to come. The Jewish people would have to contend with her in the future. Thus it was that only three years later, Judah made a treaty of friendship with Rome. Israel was becoming an increasingly independent state, prosperous and sometimes even aggressive with her neighbors. She was capable of conducting her own international affairs and making allegiances to secure her position. The scene in Israel was being set for the advent of Messiah. He would come to a proud and intensely religious Israel with a history of shedding its own blood in order to preserve pure worship of the true God. Surrounded by the world of Hellenism, the Jewish state struggled to maintain its faith. Where the Greeks philosophized about the world and questioned the very foundations of life, the Hebrew sought to live for and obey God. These two values caused great tension within the small state. In the midst of this conflict of ideals, the party of the Pharisees rose up and opposed the Hellenization of the people. In contrast, the party of the Sadducees developed as a supporter of the established political order, which became more and more dominated by Rome. Thus, it was the Sadducees who became the popular party among the moneyed, priestly, and political elite. So the independence of Israel came to an end in 63 BCE, when the Roman Pompey subdued Jerusalem, settling a dispute between the two competing factions of Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus in their fight for leadership of the Maccabean house. Taking advantage of Herod's availability, in 40 BCE the Romans appointed him, half Idumean and half Jew, as their king. Under Rome's sponsorship, Herod the Great, as he became known, rapidly consolidated his power and influence in the land. In an attempt to ingratiate himself to the people, he spent vast sums on building projects and renovating the Holy Temple. Known for his implacable hold on power without regard to loss of life, he was a terrible murderer, he was also intensely dedicated to his kingdom.
So much so that when the region was racked with famine, he was willing to nearly exhaust his personal wealth to feed his people. It was during his reign from 37 to 4 BCE that Yeshua was to be born. Herod, known for his wanton destruction of his foes, did not even spare his own family if he feared they might challenge his leadership. Thus Augustus said, better to be Herod's swine, his pig, than his son. The report of his destroying all the children in Bethlehem, under two years of age, when he heard that a king of the Jews had been born there, thus has a dreadful resonance with his reputation. Yeshua, for fear of Herod's bloodly extermination of all possible foes was taken to Egypt. It was only after Herod died that Yeshua's parents were able to return with him to the land. Thus, the years preceding the birth of the Messiah were great years of political ferment in the lands of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Now, the pride of Israel, Herod's temple. Supreme in the estimation of the Jewish people was the temple as renovated and embellished by Herod. Herod, known for his magnificent building projects, had already added to the holy city a theater, an amphitheater, and to his own glory a magnificent fortified palace adorned with the most costly furniture of gold and marble seats and beds. And starting in 20 BCE, with the grudging assent of the people, however, Herod began the momentous work of embellishing the temple that had been built hundreds of years before. No doubt Josephus was right on the money when he said Herod desired it to be an everlasting memorial to himself. So it was an eight-year project, and it was a great success, the temple itself being rebuilt by the priests themselves in a year and six months. Now, since it was the center of religious life, the temple held a more enormous political significance, and the holders of its offices wielded immense influence. The part that the temple played in forming the self-consciousness of Jews throughout the world, you cannot underestimate it. In its courts, the Sanhedrin, a law-making and enforcing council of 70 leaders, many being priests and scholars, that had its origins, at least in concept, even in Moses' time, met and conducted its affairs. And yearly, throughout the world, Jews would pay a tax for the upkeep of the temple. So, despite the domination of the Romans and their king Herod, who wasn't particularly liked, Jerusalem had not seen such magnificent days since the days of the Maccabees. The city was prosperous and influential. Its elite were sophisticated and well-connected. Things were not so well with its poorer citizens, though. Suffering under the taxation that fed Rome and supplied Herod and the temple, they anxiously awaited the arrival of the Messiah. In the Israel to which Yeshua was born, not only the citizens of Jerusalem, but also a proud, independent, spirited Israel with communities throughout the Roman Empire was on tenterhooks, waiting. Religious parties formed, great schisms appeared between them, the parties vied against each other for the allegiance of the people's hearts and minds, 
some more successfully than others. And two great issues dominated the day. The first issue was, what role did Rome and Hellenism, Greek culture, have in the life of the chosen people? And this issue is linked to the desire of the masses to throw off the yoke of their oppressor. The second issue, linked to the first, was the question of observing Jewish law. Questions about the practice of laws governing purity and the observance of Jewish custom received various answers from different groups. In the shadow of a pervasive Hellenism that threatened to corrupt the minds and morals of these people, these questions became increasingly important and divisive. Of all the parties active at Yeshua's time, that of the Zealots was the most opposed to the prevalent Hellenization of Israel. They did not like the Greeks. And more than a distinct group, it appears they were the general focus of Jews disaffected with the Roman powers. The record of their existence is included in scripture from the mouth of Gamliel II in Acts 5, who mentions leaders of different rebellions. One of these, Yehuda the Galilean, is also mentioned by Josephus as one of those who have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and lord. On the other end of the spectrum was the party of the Sadducees. Influential among the wealthy and powerful, their power lay with their allegiance to the governing authority of Rome. By many twists and turns of history, they had secured their position as the political heirs to the Maccabees. Being mostly members of the elite, they were most exposed to the impressive trappings of Greek culture and had adopted many of its values. So they were at tension with their intensely religious countrymen. Yet they had firm control over the temple and its offices. Scripture records they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, as Josephus also mentions. As a consequence of this, they adopted a deistic attitude. God is up there, we are down here, we do what we want to do. They didn't believe that God is immediately and intimately involved in human affairs, but that, as they said, we ourselves are the cause of what is good and receive what is evil from our own folly. This may be part of the reason for their observance only of those laws specifically written in Scripture. Unlike the Pharisees, who carefully built a fence of laws around the Torah to prevent one from inadvertently breaking any of its laws. So these Pharisees now, they were best known for their pious interpretation of the law. Of all sects, they feature most prominently in the New Testament accounts. Indeed, as will be seen, many of them became members of the early Messianic Jewish movement, unlike the Sadducees, some of whom did also, and in a, but in accordance with the prophets and writings, they were well aware that God has an active role in human affairs. Not that everything is a work of fate, but that for some actions man is responsible and for others God is. Believing also that the human soul has an immortal existence and that under the earth there will be rewards and punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life. 
They were careful to live their lives in obedience to God. So naturally, no other party had such a connection to the common people as the Pharisees. In their zeal to observe the Torah of Moses, they delivered to the people a great many observances by succession from their fathers, which are not written in the law. That's what Josephus says. It was certainly the general opinion that these are a certain sect of the Jews who are more religious than the others and seem to interpret the laws more accurately. This translated into great political influence, for they had so great a power over the multitude that when they say anything against the king or against the priest or the high priest, they are presently believed. So in the eyes of many people, many scholars even, it was because of their very acceptance by the people and the many things the Pharisees held in common with what Yeshua taught that they were so often in conflict with him. In other words, these were internecine, these were, these were arguments that were within the house, arguments between people who had a lot in common, family arguments and should be looked at in that light. Another major religious party now in the Israel of Yeshua was the Essenes. While there's no direct mention of them in the Bible by name, Yohanan Hamatbil, as we call him, John the Baptist, seems to have adopted many of their practices. For like him, many of them lived in the desert and had an ascetic tendency in their practices. It is for this reason that Yohanan did not appear so strange to the people of his time, but was rather revered as a prophet and preacher. Josephus describes these Essenes at length and in admiring tones. He says, The doctrine of the Essenes is this, that all things are best ascribed to God. They teach the immortality of the souls and esteem that the rewards of righteousness are to be earnestly striven for. And when they send what they have dedicated to God into the temple, they don't offer sacrifices because they have more pure offerings of their own. It also deserves our admiration how much they exceed all other men that addict themselves to virtue and this in righteousness, and indeed to such a degree that as it has never appeared among any other men. There are about 4,000 men that live in this way and neither marry wives nor are desirous to keep servants, as thinking the latter tempts men to be unjust. While the Sadducees didn't believe that God was directly involved in human affairs, and the Sadducees believed that he was sometimes involved directly in human affairs, the Essenes stood out. With origins as a Jewish reform movement, they expected to take over eventually when Messiah returned and validated their view of the Torah. They were opposed to Greek influences on Jewish society, and they had developed as a separate, separate religious sect, aloof even of the temple sacrificial system. They believed that fate governs everything, and nothing befalls men but what is according to its determination. Like the Pharisees, they believed in the immortality of our soul. And it's no wonder that they were widely respected because they were clearly devout people and great idealists.
living in communities often separated from the people for sake of purity. They had rules to govern every aspect of life, and joining them was a serious matter. After a period of initiation with them, one would give over all of his possessions to the order to be used for the common good. Josephus again wrote that these men are despisers of riches, and so very communicative as raises our admiration. Nor is there anyone to be found among them who has more than another, for it is a law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order. As a result, there were, as he says, no poor or rich among them, and each was enabled to serve God according to the principles of the order. Since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, the scholars have identified a number of really clear parallels to them and their teachings and that of the early Messianic community. So we've covered four groups zealots, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. They weren't the only prominent groups in a nation awash with religious opinions. Naturally, there were also those who moved completely out of the Jewish camp in favor of Hellenistic learning and culture. Some were even known to hide the evidence of their circumcision in an attempt to be accepted. Thus, Jewish culture was not only full of political turmoil, born out of a proud history, but also of great theological, doctrinal diversity and speculation. So what were all these different people thinking about Messiah? Amidst all of this complexity, they hoped, many of them were hoping. Thus, this first century had a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This was an expectation of a Messiah, an anointed one who would fulfill many expectations and hopes raised by the predictions of the prophets and Israel's desire for freedom from foreign oppression. Jewish and Christian scholars today disagree about the kind of Messiah that Yeshua declared himself to be, or even that he declared himself to be the Messiah. The question that begs to be asked is, whether Yeshua was the kind of Messiah that the people of his day were hoping for. What did their reading of the scriptures and tradition lead them to believe about Messiah? What effect did the domination of foreign powers in the nation's life have on their ideas about his role as a deliverer? The answers to questions like this are far from simple. You, you could expect that. They varied from segment to segment of Jewish society. They varied depending where you lived. And it's self-evident that to most people, that's Jews of the first century who were looking for the Messiah, however, were looking for someone who would deliver them from the oppression of the Roman emperor, the Roman administration, the Roman army. So it's not this point that we'll prove here. What can and should be proved is that there were streams of messianic expectation that existed and maybe even flourished in certain segments of Jewish society that were quite different. In such a stream, it was not such a leap as many suppose for Yeshua's followers to acknowledge him as the Son of God, 
or even going just one step beyond commonly accepted thought to patently acknowledge that in some way he should be identified with God himself. We will thus therefore emphasize on traditions that validate the messianic assertion that Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel and not just a pretender. So, this is where we will stop at this point. There is much more that is to be said about Messiah the King, Messiah the Son, Messiah the Servant and Priest. There is much more to be said about what is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other writings of that era. We have the Temple Scroll, we have Jubilees, we have Enoch, Esdras, we have the Messianic rules, we have the Targumim, the Targums of the day. We have the Serek, which is sometimes called the Community Rule or the Manual of Discipline. We have the Damascus Document. There's so much that was written, and so much of this bears on what Jewish people were thinking about the Messiah. So that's where we're going to go, and the next time that we go on our podcast, we're going to look at these things, we're going to see what the written record says about what Jewish people were thinking about the Messiah in his day. Thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. Do me a favor. Take a minute to like this podcast and leave a positive review wherever you are listening to it. Support our podcast by going to onamessianicjudaism.com. My email address is daniel at nassim.org, and I'm looking forward to your feedback. I am Dr. Daniel Nassim, and this is on Messianic Judaism. And again, next week, the tremendous literary legacy, the religious movements of the first century BC and CE left behind in their expectation of Messiah.